Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Investing. Every Monday night on our YouTube channel, we go looking for the best stock ideas so you can make money out of the stock market. And rumor has it that impeachment talk and global as well as US economic slowdown indicators are increasing the Trump team's interest in good trade deal news. And as trade deal news improves, the outlook for the Chinese company shares out there and their prices should also improve. On tonight's show, we will talk to Dr. Matthew McDougall of the Australia-China Daigao Association. I'll also ask my experts, Julia Lee, Michael McCarthy, Charlie Aitken, and Paul Rickard for the best China stock plays. So without any further ado, let's go to my first interview. Julia Lee from Berman Invest and Michael McCarthy from Sue C. Marcus. Thanks for coming to the program. Pleasure. Pleasure, Peter. All right. Now, I asked you guys to hone in on China. Uh, I'm actually interviewing uh, the, uh, the uh, Dr. Uh, Matthew McDougall from the Australia-China Daigao, hope I pronounced mm. it right, um, association. Can you believe it? Uh, there's 100,000 Daigaos in Australia. Mm. Staggering. Okay, so I want you guys to tell us how we should invest to cash in on China's future. Julia? Sure, well we know that um, having a look at some of those China exposed companies that the Daigai growth has been moderating and instead we've been seeing e-commerce really surging. So mm -hmm. I thought I'd focus in on an e-commerce company over in China called JD.com. Yeah. Now it is traded through the NASDAQ as well if you yeah. want to trade it through the US. Um, but this essentially is an electronic platform which deals in electronics, consumer goods and is starting to get into things like grocery as well as luxury goods. And Just diversify. It is moving into a lot of different segments. Um, and what excites me about this company is in the second quarter of the year, we did see, um, we saw earnings growing at about 23%. Now for the third quarter, they're predicting growth of 20 to 24%. And the third quarter of the year is usually the weakest quarter for Chinese companies like this mm. because it's in the fourth quarter where you start to see the singles day and start to see a real uptick uh, from that type of promotional activity. So mm. I'd expect this fourth quarter to be quite strong there as well. Um, Tencent owned 20% of this company. Mm. Um, and look, it's been doing pretty well in the year today, but I st still think that it has good legs given that we are seeing strong revenue growth coming through and the profit results have been better than expected. So you like both? Or you like JD only? I, I like both, but I like JD better than Tencent. I think it has a faster growth profile. Okay. Mike? Well, look, I really like that thematic. Um, you know, we've been talking for a long time about the shift in China's economy away from an industrial economy towards a consumer-driven economy, right. so Services, I like that yeah. theme. But I also like to keep it simple, Peter, mm. and the reality is... Why? Well, you're not a simple bloke, you're really <laughs> complex. <laughs> well, I tend to overcomplicate, Peter. <laughs> so, using Occam's razor, I'm going to cut through, yeah. um, and, and I point out a number of iron ore producers are in a very attractive position. Now, I've got to leave Fortescue off this list, not because I dislike it, mm. but simply because it's still trading near $9. Okay. And I can't buy in there. For those who want to take a safer approach, Rio has pulled back significantly from its highs above $100 a share. Mm. But for mine, it's in the smaller end of the iron ore market where I suspect there'll be good opportunities. And I note today Pilbara Minerals was one of the key performers, uh, top in the in the 200, I think up around 5%. So yeah. looks like a few other people might be taking that simple approach yeah. as well. Yeah. Are you saying uh, on the basis that China after a trade deal might do better 
always link it to the Vale problems when it comes to the tailings there. Why is iron ore back on your radar screen? Vale is certainly one of the reasons, and I don't think that's going to go as well as everyone has hoped. But also, I'd point to the idea that uh, just like Japan, there's a lot of cooperation across the economy in China. Yeah. And when things are at loggerheads with international partners like Australia, like the US, a lot of China pulls together. And so steel production gets cut, imports get cut. Now this, I'm not arguing conspiracy theory, this is a different way of looking at operating a business and it's one of the realities on Sounds the Sounds like a communistic China. version of capitalism. Hybrid, <laughs> 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 sure, sure. But once, uh, if there is a, you know, a path cleared on trade, <coughs> then that cooperation will turn around very, very sharply. And the fall in iron ore prices from above 800 yuan to um, you know, around 600 means that it's well positioned. I, I wonder if sometime down the track we'll be talking about a Trump-led economic recovery. <laughs> if, yeah, if the trade war, like, I know there's talk about impeachment making the White House more amenable to fixing up the trade war situation, but it would be amazing to say in nine months' time before a US election, we're talking about a Trump-led recovery. That'd be extraordinary. Julia? I have another one. Um, mm. Now, um, Louis Vuitton, they say, is uh, the brand of love in Asia. That's because mm. LV, if you take out the uh, vowels, is mm. uh, Louis Vuitton. Um, yeah. And look, the beauty trend in um, in Asia is a, is a huge one, especially premium beauty in China. Just having a look at some of the growth rates in 2017, premium uh, beauty grew by about 25%, and then in 2018, that accelerated and grew by about 28%. So it's a big category globally, but it, particularly in China, it's a it's a huge category. Um, mm. Even in the US, having a look at uh, some of the, the channels for beauty that grew by, I think it was about 8% last year. Mm. Um, but exposure to this, I'd prefer it through something like uh, Louis Vuitton Moe Hennessy, mm. uh, LVMH, it, mm. it trades in Europe, um, in Paris. Um, and look, I think it has a strong growth profile there. And just to give you an example of how strong those beauty trends are at the moment, uh, the, the superstar, rock star, uh, Rihanna, Anna. She uh, released her beauty brand Fenty, first year of sales, 566 million US dollars, yeah. first year. Yeah. Well, here's a guy who's long on beauty. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sarcasm is not appreciated. Okay. However, I do have one more, okay. and that's Tencent Holding. You mentioned it before. Yeah. It's actually listed in Hong Kong, so Australian investors can buy it directly. Uh, and it's fallen now partly you know, due to concerns about what's happening in Hong Kong mm. on the ground, but also because of the concerns about the trade war. It's fallen from about 400 Hong Kong dollars to be trading around 316, 316 today. Mm. So that's a big pullback. Yeah. Now this is China's internet operator. It mm. is directly leveraged to growth in the economy because it's part of the internet age to that new growth. So mm. uh, I think that that pullback in price means that that's an opportunity to get exposure to a growing China. Okay, let's come back home. I said to you guys, your best stock of the week. <laughs> and you got an interesting one. Uh, I'm going to surprise. Um, yeah. I know there's been a lot of focus on frothy stocks, so I thought I'd go back down to an unloved stock uh, that's looking at a turnaround. Now, you know, we've seen some great turnarounds in terms of the Aussie share market. Mm. Qantas has been one of them in the last decade, Blue Scope still. I think it's uh, Domino's turn. Mm. They have been investing in turning around their strategy, especially in Europe where there's a new CEO um, in France. In fact, they're planning to open a record <coughs> number of stores in the current financial year, a TV campaign around Europe, um, depending on some milestones. Japan's going from strength to strength, and I think Australia is improving as well. So mm -hmm. FY20, I think, is going to be a, a good year. Have they created the, the low-fat pizza that actually tastes like a fat or, pizza? Or pizza. Or pizza is low-fat. What are you talking about, Pete? <laughs> <laughs> How 
about the, the, the muscle engendering pizza? Oh, that would work too. Hungry. <laughs> I'd buy that. <laughs> 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 Alright, you got another local that we should... Well, I've done okay out of active managers recently, Peter. Yeah. Um, as I've mentioned... Because Challenge was one of your calls a few weeks ago. Mm, yeah, or, and we, took, we were talking about it between 660 and 680. It's mm. now trading 770 today, so yes. that's worked well for me. Platinum Asset Management has also risen, not as strongly, from about 380 to trade at 420. Today it pulled back to 411. But even so, I'm liking that theme and the leverage that those active managers that are listed give me to that theme. And so I'm looking at one that's reporting first quarter sales mm -hmm. on Wednesday. This is Janice Henderson, formerly associated with the AMP, now mm -hmm. a standalone. It's diversified across the world, it's got operations everywhere, and it's diversified across asset classes. Yeah. Now I believe markets are subject to fashions, just like a lot of other mm -hmm. fields of human endeavour. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, that active management style is out of fashion. Mm. I like to buy before they come into fashion mm. and get the whole of the rise. Mm. So I'm looking at Janice Henderson before it reports its first yeah, quarter. So you're, you're basically saying the infatuation with ETFs eventually will change when it's noted, noted that some active managers really outperform. Absolutely. And I, I know with our financial planning clients, we've been putting people into Magellan because Active management-wise, fantastic. Mm. But even a company like WCM, um, yeah, which is listed, it's actually mm. outperformed Magellan. Yeah. Only just, but putting both together, you've got two very good active managers, which I think gives you the alpha in your, your portfolio. Mm. Straw hats in winter, Peter. Oh. <laughs> He's such an old-fashioned fashion guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Julia Lee, to you. Julia Lee, Baron Invest, Michael McCarthy from CMC Markets. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you. In the modern setting, we've heard about something unusual called diegals, people who go out and buy lots of infant formula, put them in suitcases and go back to China. Well, these are, as I say, very unusual days and it's an unusual trend within Australia, but it's become a growing trend. And so we're talking to Dr. Matthew McDougall of the Australia Chinese Diegal Association. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, sir. A lot of people have heard about dye gals, uh, and, and I didn't know there was an Australia-Chinese dye gal association. Mm -hmm. Why don't you explain to people what a dye gal is and why there is an association here? Well, look, dye gal technically means buying on behalf of. You know, mm. That's the translation. Mm. And I guess in 2008, when melamine was in, you know, introduced into infant formula and there's a big uproar about it, mm. the Chinese became very concerned, overly concerned about food safety in China. Yeah. And so they looked for ways to get access to healthy, you know, quality products. Mm. And so they sought advice from people they know and trust, usually loved ones. Mm. Uh, a lot of those people were studying in Australia. Yeah. So they'd reach out to people here, they'd say, can you source me some high quality Australian product? And that became the informal diegout trade that we know it is today. So mm. over the course of eight to 10 years, it's now become industrialized. Mm. And uh, you know, it, it all comes around by this, this fear and anxiety over food quality, food mm. safety. And I, and I guess historically, if you're a little old lady in a, an apartment in, in um, Shanghai mm. and you find it hard to get out, there would be actually shoppers who have been buying on people's behalf for, for centuries. Yeah, absolutely. Those little old ladies tend to live in extended families in yeah. China. So yeah. those little old ladies uh, tend to have kids and grandkids typically, yeah. uh, but they have a high degree of interest in that, that grandkid. You know? mm. So those little emperors, uh, mm. so they call them, mm. uh, need to have the best stuff because it's an investment for the future. Yeah. So yeah. they would influence, say, 
don't go into Shanghai, mm. talk to Cousin Wang down in Melbourne or Sydney, mm. yep. and Cousin Wang would send it up to them. Okay. So How many day gales do we have in Australia? Look, it's hard to know. Estimates put it at about 80 to 100,000. <laughs> it's so, unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, well, the bigger thing is it's almost a billion dollars in cross-border trade, which mm. is, you know, from this informal affiliate-type sales network, it's a very powerful channel. Okay, now, a lot of us heard about, you know, busloads of people going outside pharmacies and mm. going with cases mm. and loading up with Bellamy mm. stuff and A2 mm. stuff or whatever. Mm. Mm. Um, uh, how serious was that for a while? Look, 2016 is when we saw the peak of that. Yeah. And I think there was a little bit of craziness and it wasn't about all brands. So a lot of the people sort of concern themselves that infant formula is in crisis. Mm. Well, it's not really. It's about one or two brands in that category. Mm. You know, A2 and Aptamil is where the high degree of contention is because there's problems getting it on shelf. But, you know, most products are free available. But since 2016, manufacturers have been more sympathetic to the Chinese Daigo. In fact, they mm. that actually create events and buying programs specifically for them. Mm. But then Infant Formula was an anomaly outside yeah. of that. And, and but then China cracked down on the cross-border trade that wasn't going through official channels. Look, China's tweaked the registrations. I guess tweaked is a good way to call it for years. Yeah. And I guess the major tweaking was January 1st this year, mm. whereas the new cross-border regulations changed the way that Daigo uh, went about business. Mm. Uh, and I think to the benefit of the whole industry, mm. Chinese government were concerned with two things. One was the taxation and income not collected at the border. Mm. Secondly, the types of products that were resold back in China, there was no recourse. So if that product that was so resold back in China caused someone sickness or illness, mm. Who did you go after? Mm. So part of the regulation was to say, if you're going to resell in China, you must be registered as a business, mm. and therefore there is recourse over any issues with quality about that product. It's not a bad thing. Mm. Do you think that it's possible that Chinese um, uh, administration are actually afraid of too much money being spent overseas when they really should be developing their own local businesses to cash in that market? Look, I think that's fair to say. You know, the Chinese government is spending a considerable sum of resource in trying to give the local community, the Chinese local community, confidence in their local manufactured products. Yep. So I think that's a fair assessment. Mm. The Chinese consumer, however, sees the Western products in some sort of glory. Mm. And so there's always going to be a desire by the Chinese community to buy from overseas markets, predominantly mm. Australia. Yeah. Um, although the Chinese government want to put a curtail on that. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it was um, there was an Australian bed maker that was selling beds for like eighty thousand oh, dollars in China because it was Western. Yeah. I say it was yeah. a good quality bed, but we yeah. would never pay that kind of price. Sure, but you know, Brand Australia still maintains a high degree of interest by most Chinese consumers. Yeah. You know, a lot of people you know study here, mm. travel here, uh, and we're seen as a very safe. Uh, high food quality destination. Mm. I've also been told, this is purely speculation, but it did come from a, a Chinese colleague of mine who actually is involved in WeChat, that sometimes you'll get um, movements on WeChat discrediting foreign products on the basis that, well, they want people to buy the local version. Is that, look, it's, you've probably heard that same Look, story. it's true, but I've seen it in action. Mm -hmm. You tend to see it around Japanese products if there's some you know, 
geopolitical right, really issues yeah. uh, around, as we saw that around 2014, 2015. Mm. Uh, we saw it again with the French uh, in early 2012, 2013. Yeah. So there is some geopolitical, mm, I guess, uh, alignments mm. between those types of campaigns online mm. to what we're seeing. And I guess, you know, the, you might say there's some US tension right now because yeah. of some negative types of, of sentiment. But, you know, fortunately, I don't see too many incidents of Australian products being caught up in that type of activity. Mm. Um, the trade war mm-hmm. and its impact on uh, Daigal mm-hmm. and particularly the Australian yeah, version of sure. it. Look, we're not sort of seeing a slowdown in products being sold by this channel to China at all. Mm. Uh, what we are seeing is some cross-border uh, delay, so in customs clearance. Mm. You might say that it could be a coincidence, mm. but it is slightly slower getting across border. Yeah. But in terms of, you know, are the Chinese uh, consumers turning against brand Australia and Australian brands? We don't see that at all. In fact, mm. we're seeing quite the opposite. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make this a hypothetical question because sure. I'm just going to say, assume that, you know, unfortunately some loved one of yours Eld, very elderly, had a great life, so happened to pass yeah. away and leave you a million dollars. Sure. Uh, and, she's, and she recommended in the will that you invest the money overseas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would you be confident to invest in the Chinese market going forward? Well, I have. So mm-hmm. I, I own businesses in China. I've yeah. got teams in Beijing and Shanghai. Yeah. I continue to maintain a confidence uh, with the Chinese uh, consumer. Yeah. You know, all of the indicators suggest that even though they're slowing down, mm-hmm. it's still not a bad percentage of growth. Um, As a shareholder and investor, I would look to de-risk some of my investments in that market. But I'm very bullish about what President Xi's intending to do. I think uh, the One Road, One Belt initiative creates opportunity. Uh, I'd be interested to see how that sort of plays out in the next year or two. But if you're an Australian uh, manufacturer, looking to export overseas, where would you think? Well, China is obviously in the top one or two, mm. um, and that doesn't change. Mm. Now, what is your, well, one or two of your businesses in China? Uh, one is a cross-border uh, business, so mm. we move large quantities of product, agro-product generally, mm. into mainland China, mm. and another one is a brand um, consultancy. So we work with Western companies to help them position and brand in China itself. Is that why you're a part of the, the Daigal Association? Because yeah, you, you are actually moving products from Australia to China, yeah. and, and you're effectively supplying on behalf of Chinese customers. Yeah, absolutely. So a few years ago, mm. a lot of the manufacturers that we work with were coming to us trying to understand, well, what's this Daigal thing about? Mm. And so we had both the manufacturers sort of having a curiosity and an interest. Mm. Uh, a number of our suppliers were doing a very poor job at creating relationships with mm. that community. Uh, and on the other hand, we had the Daigao participants being demonised by the media through mostly infant formula. Mm. And so we thought if we can create an association, help that Daigao community understand what sort of code of conduct would, would make sense so that they could be seen in a better way, conduct business in a better way, mm. and at the same time create a, an education process for the manufacturers, that bridging would be to the betterment of the Australian economy. Mm. And that was the initial uh, thing we set out to do. Okay, one final question. Um, on the, the Trump trade war mm. um, and his unusual ways of um, mm. dealing with the people who's negotiating with, which is been doing ever since he, sure. he was an entrepreneur. Sure. Um, do you think the Chinese are, are working out how to play Trump and that they are, they're, will, they're not willing to undermine their own economic progress just to um, you know, um, 
you know, succumb or to deal with Trump in these unusual ways? Well, I think there's two things there. So I think the Chinese have definitely worked out Trump in how he works, and I think he's unpredictable, and I think of all those things. I th that they're smart negotiators. The key difference is the Chinese work on different time frames. Mm. So the Americans, and as much as the Australians do, we work on very political cycles. Yeah. The Chinese take a long game. Yeah. Uh, I think that they'll wait it out if they have to, and I don't necessarily see there's a weakness. So I think, yes, they understand he's predictable, or he's unpredictable, mm. but on the other hand, he's predictable, mm. because, uh, you know, he's got some behaviours now that are consistently coming back around. Mm. But I don't think that's a problem. You know, they know 2020 is another line in the sand. Mm. And whatever happens at that point, they'll either wait it out or go hard and negotiate. I don't see them compromising a great deal. Yes, because if the Chinese stock market happens to fall 50%, the president of China won't get kicked out of the next election. Yeah, presidency, he's basically there for life now. Mm. So. I guess his life could be shortened by someone who's unhappy <laughs> about the stock market loss, but that's a, a pretty yeah, long, long bow. Absolutely. Dr. Matthew McDougall, thanks for joining us. My, my pleasure, sir. So we're going to talk about China today, guys. Um, Charlie, let's kick off with you first of all. Now, I noticed in the AFR, apparently, there's, um, China's gone cool on Australia. Um, and so I want to know, how do we play China? Do we, do we believe even trade deal phase one will help Chinese stocks go up? Well, we play it a bit differently. We look for revenues that are not necessarily based in China, but are actually Chinese revenues. So, you give I, a classic example. Well, I, think, I still think our biggest holding with exposure to Chinese consumers is Louis Vuitton Moe Hennessy, the world's leader in luxury goods. Mm. A stock that covers pretty much every element of luxury you could, uh, you could want to buy, mm. with 32% of its sales coming from Chinese nationals and all the growth driven by Chinese nationals. Now, the most interesting thing of the last mm. month for us has been despite the riots in Hong Kong and the public disorder in Hong Kong, people were worried about Louis Vuitton sales, Gucci sales, Montclair sales. Mm. They have all been as solid as a rock. And even on Friday, Gucci, the parent company, Kering, yeah. was up 9% on confirming sales. So these luxury sales mm. remain very, very, very resilient. So I like doing it that way yeah. at the moment. And we heard today that they've put a $14 billion offer in for Tiffany's. That's not a bad play. Yeah, well, remember, Louis Vuitton's 194 billion euro market cap stock. It owns brands like Louis Vuitton, Dior, Bulgari, Moet, Hennessy, mm. uh, um, uh, Verve, Clicquot, um, it goes on and on. But Tiffany, if you think about it, $14 billion, US, uh, US earnings. It's uh, jewellery and watches. Jewellery and watches are only 7% of Louis Vuitton's profit at the moment, mm. including Bulgari, whereas leather goods and fashion are 57%. It actually makes sense. Bernard Arnault has done wonderful acquisitions over time. Mm. It is a true luxury brand, and I think that rumour about Louis Vuitton bidding for a Tiffany will prove to be right, mm. and it may prove to be a good acquisition at the right price. Okay. So it makes logical sense. The other thing is, they control all of their own sales. Remember, Louis Vuitton only sells its product through its own stores, mm. same as Tiffany's. Mm. No third parties, no websites, they control everything. Okay, before I go to Paul, now when you were a young man, you, oh. ac you actually used to play Chinese companies direct. You know, if I, if I, if you were the first person to talk to me about Tencent and all these other companies. Why have you changed? Why have you said... I've still got some Tencent. Mm. No, no, I think they're okay. But mm. 
you've got to learn your lesson. It's a risk you don't necessarily have to take. Right. You can get plenty of Chinese exposure without investing in China. Right. And that's a lesson I learned the year, you know, the year before. We got hurt a bit up there. Yeah. So we've, we've thought about that and thought, where do you buy the actual revenue and exposure without being domiciled in China, right. without having Chinese accounting risk and without having the huge volatility that comes with this sort of you know, risk on, risk off trade mm. relationship. Mm. So we've thought about that and just recalibrated where we own things. Okay. Paul. You're not well, first of all, kind of first of all, uh, that's right, Peter. First of all, I have very little first-hand experience shopping at uh, Louis Vuitton oh, shops. So oh, that view is, is a lie. Yeah, and that's because he's a tight boy. He's got the money to do it. Poor old Fiona has been uh, yeah, like, uh, mis mistreated by you, scab. No one believes that. <laughs> so I had to, I had you asked for that. You asked I, I for did, that. but I had to get that disclosure <laughs> out there. Uh, look, I, 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 a bit like Charlie, I think you can play it indirectly. Um, I haven't been a huge fan of the, tr of the China trade per se with mm. Australian stocks, mainly because uh, I just thought just the unknown regulatory risk, and we've yeah, seen it. Um, and I guess also is what tends to happen is people get things get overhyped. So people talk about how big the Chinese mm. market is, how many people are the rise of the middle class. And before you know it, the stock price is sort of doubled or trebled and mm -hmm. on the basis of very little. So I, I was always a bit wary on the hype. Um, the one stock that I do think looks, look, it's starting to look like value is A2 Milk. Mm. Um, it's, uh, it's come off a long way. Some would argue it might have a bit further to go, Peter. Uh, I think it's actually got a pretty solid business. The management team's shown a, a fair degree of commitment. It had a business in the UK. It's got out of that. It's just focusing on China and uh, mm. Australasia, China and the US. And perhaps in some ways sees the US as being, if anything, maybe a bigger market one day than... Uh, uh, than, than China. Mm -hmm. But it does seem like if you look at their, uh, they gave a very interesting presentation a couple of weeks back where they went through their marketing strategy in China. It's on the website. It looks like they really have thought about what they're trying to do. So yeah. I'm not saying it's ready to turn around, mm -hmm. but uh, I do think there's value and that's yeah. one way you can look at it. The only thing I'll say about A2 Milk is that I, I don't disagree with all that, but just remember this is a company with no hard assets. It doesn't produce the yeah. milk. It's, it's a marketing company mm -hmm. and it does a lot of third party marketing too. So they absolutely have to get marketing right. Yeah. I mean, there's no shortage of milk or milk powder in the world right now. It's a, it's a huge yeah. commodity. And, right? and there's a, there's a couple other competitors coming yeah, into yeah. that field, but that actually may be good for the category. So yeah. I take your point. They do yeah. have good supply arrangements mm. in place yeah. uh, to make sure mm. they've got, got access to the powder and the processing. So it is a marketing company, but in some ways, I'm not sure that's a bad thing, knowing how to market, how to sell, how to distribute. Mm. Uh, in a very niche market uh, with a niche product, mm. um, you know, that can actually be a real strength. So. Yeah. Uh, they're not trying to do too much, Peter. So right. I, I think it's one way you can access to that sort of growing market. Okay. One of the other facts I, I, I read in my research, Peter, is that um, they're now in something like uh, what about eleven or twelve thousand mother and baby stores. Now, I guess they're the old sort of uh, well, mother and babies in China. Or in in China, oh. but to tell you how big that market is, is about one hundred and forty thousand. <laughs> <laughs> so it's about a ten percent penetration. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a huge market that shows you what, what, what it's capable of. Yeah, but and I, I want you to talk to this point, and I'm sure you've thought about it as well, Charlie, um, the regulatory challenge in China. What if China says, well, we're sick and tired of these you know, foreign companies making money. We'll make it ourselves. They could just basically change the rules, couldn't they? Well, yes, but you can also see that the Chinese just bid for Bellamy's yeah. to get a foothold into the, the, the milk powder from this end of the, yeah. this end of the world. So right. that regulatory change can work both ways. Mm. It can actually lead to takeovers of foreign-owned companies that actually produce a high-quality mm. high milk powder, etc. Yeah. Et uh, we've seen that in a number of industries where they've start, tried to invest in mm. Australia, Peter. Mm. So 
Look, I, there is regulatory risk, and that's why I think you've got to be a little bit careful. I think you need a premium yeah. um, uh, to invest in China. I think the Hong Kong situation demonstrates that as well. Mm. So uh, care is needed, but, but you've got to buy stuff that's got value and I think has got a, a legitimate and a growing business. Mm. And, uh, you know, you could, it's got to be on a different margin to what you might pay for an Australian company competing locally as opposed to one yeah, competing I mean, look, in China. It's, it is worth keeping in mind. Like, we're not getting on brilliantly with Beijing at the moment no, in terms yeah. of... And there is some risk that they could do some little slap over the wrist things to mm. certain industries. So mm. I think that is not being alarmist. Yeah. And I I've heard yeah. WeChat has been used to discredit Blackmores, uh, and there was like a a, 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 a concerted program to, to mm. uh, undermine the company. Yeah, look, I don't think it applies to iron ore or liquefied natural gas yeah. or coal, yeah. but it, they, it just could be a little bit of increased risk of some of this. Mm. But a lot of these shares have fallen anyway. Yeah, well, yeah and look, that, that's why, mm. look, Peter, I'm not out there trying to buy at the mm. top. Uh, mm. Whether it's low enough down is a, another question. But I think, uh, you know, I'm wary of the hype, wary of the regulatory risk, mm. wary that, uh, you know, and we saw it in the example, Peter, I think, came with, with Tencent and the, in the direction they wouldn't, weren't allowed to couple a couple of NBA uh, basketball games. Yeah. Look, mm. really, if, if the Chinese authorities want to make life tough for an Australian company, mm. uh, they certainly can. So that, that's why you need a premium. Or they want to make tough for anything that else is competing in their market. So yeah. mm. I think maybe playing it indirectly through uh, suggestions like, Chinese ha like Charlie has is perhaps one way mm. to do it. One last thing, and it's a question without notice. I've been reading a number of people saying that as impeachment uh, talk increases in the US, um, the White House team are, are working a lot harder to get some kind of trade deal because they don't really need uh, the economy and the stock market tanking when there's impeachment talk around. Charlie, go over on that. Yeah, I think that's arguably right. But I mean, I mean, Trump's very aware of the share market. This is one of his, one of his positive advertising points. And as we know, as we sit here today, Peter, the S&P 500 is three points below mm. an all-time high, mm. despite impeachment, Brexit, whatever, uh, inverted yield curves, well. this supposedly bad reporting season in America, which is actually turning out quite well. You know, everything you can think of has been negative. Climbing the wall of worry, here we are. Mm. Because guess what's most important, Pete? You don't fight the Fed. Mm. Fed's been cutting rates, and the, guess what? The US share market's pretty much back at all-time highs. So I think the impeachment thing has as we as we discussed here, I think a couple of weeks ago, it, it's directed Trump to focus attention uh, focus attention elsewhere. Mm. The economy, the share market, rate cut. You know, mm. so look, I, I I still think a lot of that's a furphy, but it, it has certainly been reverse correlated to the share market. It's yeah. doing well under that. Yeah, yeah, Paul. yeah. I think that's the point. It is three points off an all time high, mm. uh, record high. So look, the U.S. market goes from strength to strength, and uh, I, I don't get worried about the impeachment thing, Pete. I think it, if anything, it's as Charlie said. He's focusing on other issues now, and he needs to. So he's, he really he wants to be re-elected in 2020, then maybe change the rules after that. So I mean, he's he's done, doing, right? He actually has done quite... I mean, he has bullied the Fed into cutting rates. Right. It's mm. quite amazing. Mm. And here we are. Yeah. I guess some people would say they might not have needed to cut rates if there was no trade war and there was no challenge to global growth. But that's an argument Yeah, but for think about it. He controls, he controls that trade war narrative. Mm. So they get them to cut rates, then he, then he eases the trade war, oh, then he's got low rates and, and eased trade war. Yeah, happy days. Uh, Charlie Aiken, Aiken Investment Management, and Paul Ricard, The Switzer Report. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks, Pete.